You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. The title of my talk is Hayek, the Nobel, and the Revival of Austrian Economics. This topic clearly calls for a long-run history of thought perspective. It will turn out that the flow of ideas to which we will be referring consists of the development of profound yet elementary insights. But there is no need to apologize for the elementary character of the insights which which we will be discussing. In fact, this paradox that the revival of the ideas of the Austrian school has consisted of insights at the same time profound and elementary will turn out to be crucially important to the chapter in the history of modern economic thought that we will be exploring. The orthodox view of the history of the Austrian school of economics is as follows. The school was born in 1871 with the publication of Menger's Grundsätze der Volkswirtschaftslehre. The 143-year history of this school is usually seen as beginning with a 60-year steady growth in its importance and its, in, in its professional reputation, followed in the 1930s by a precipitous decline. That decline led to a 30-year period from about 1940 to about 1970, generally seen as the low point in its history. From the point of view of the mainstream of economic thought, during these decades, the Austrian school had virtually disappeared. The debates of the 30s, it was generally believed, had decisively defeated the Austrians, represented in most accounts by Ludwig Mises and Friedrich Hayek. They had been defeated in regard to macroeconomic issues in which Keynes and the Keynesians were seen as having overwhelmed Hayek. They were seen as defeated in regard to the socialist calculation debate in which Langer, Lerner, and others were seen to have thoroughly discredited Mises' bold politically charged challenges to the profession. And... Uh, it was seen, they were seen as having been defeated in regard to the more abstract issues in capital theory, in which Frank Knight was seen to have conclusively bested Hayek's attempts to reaffirm the classic Austrian Bavarian positions long ago challenged uh, by John Bates Clark. Moreover, the Austrians in that period were seen as having been hopelessly unable to keep up with modern methodological developments in the profession. Austrians were out of date in regard to the exciting advances in mathematical economics and in econometric research. Mises' insistence on the purely logical, a priori character of economic theory was seen as thoroughly out of step with the 20th century philosophy of science rooted in the empirical. To boot, The political unrest of the 1930s, which physically scattered the group of Austrian scholars who had surrounded Mises in Vienna, meant that the Austrian school existed for economists between 1940 and 1970 strictly as a bygone episode in the textbooks of the history of economic thought. This perception on the part of the wider economics profession that the Austrian school had by the end of World War II disappeared was, curiously enough, reinforced by a sense somehow developed among key members of the Vienna group that a separate identity for for, for the Austrian school was no longer needed. We can mention perhaps Gottfried Haberler and Fritz Machlapp as being outstanding examples uh, of in this regard. 
It appears that these eminent Austrians and others honestly believed that what was importantly new in the Austrian economics developed between 1871 and 1930 had, by the end of World War II, in fact been successfully absorbed into the mainstream body of economic thought. To insist on a uniquely Austrian label was, from this point of view, professionally counterproductive and, in the worst sense of the term, backward-looking. The wider profession had fully embraced the once novel Austrian ideas on opportunity cost, on marginalist thinking, on the subjectivism needed for the analysis of the demand side of the market. To insist on a separate label seemed to these Austrians to insist on an unfruitful intellectual isolationism. A final nail in the coffin of the Austrian school was, in the view of mainstream economics, driven by what was seen as the utter unfashionability of its ideological implications as understood by the mainstream. In a post-war era in which socialist ideals were widely seen as shining pointers to a progressive future, in which the role of massive government planning and control was not to be questioned, in that era, Mises and Hayek's defense of free markets and classical liberalism was seen simply as antediluvian. To identify, to identify oneself as an Austrian was almost to place oneself outside the perimeter of modern civilized social discourse. With the Austrian school seen in this orthodox view as have, having simply died by mid-century, the resurgence of interest in the school, which began in the 1970s, can be seen as, in, as an intriguing, mystifying history of thought puzzle. What was responsible for this mysterious resurrection of an intellectual tradition long thought to be completely dead? We'll, I'll try and interpret the theme assigned for this keynote lecture as being to explore the possibility of dispelling this mystery by reference to the important 1970 award of the Nobel Prize in Economics to Friedrich Hayek. What role, if any, did the award of this prize play in the remarkable resurgence of Austrian economics during the past four decades? There can be no doubt that Hayek's receiving the Nobel Prize had an impact both on the way the profession looked at the Austrians and on the way in which the Austrians saw themselves. The mainstream view may indeed have viewed Hayek as having been roundly defeated during the 30s, but his stature as a most prominent economist was never in doubt. His earliest stellar pre-war reputation, burnished now by the award, meant that Hayek's ideas and those of his mentors must now be re-examined with at least a modicum of professional respect. Even Hayek's views on the ideological implications of his economics, views long vilified ever since Hayek's 1944 Road to, the Road to Serfdom, even those views could now receive a fresh examination, especially as the ideological climate had mellowed somewhat since the 40s. But Austrians themselves could also now see their own ideas from a less sheltered perspective. One eminent writer, himself by no means antagonistic to the ideas of Hayek and to some extent of Mises, described with a certain dismay the self-image adopted by followers of Mises during the years leading up to the 70s. Writing before Nobel's, before Hayek's Nobel Prize, James Buchanan commented, Mises and his followers have been too prone to accept the splendid isolation of arrogant eccentrics, to divorce their teaching too sharply from mainstream interests, and too eager to launch into polemic, epistemological, methodological, ideological. Now, one need not agree fully with this pronouncement in order to recognize its germ of truth. The handful of American Austrians had, during the immediate post-war decades, virtually written off the economics profession as hopeless. They had, in effect, retreated into a small circle surrounding Mises himself, 
protected against the alien ideas of the mainstream by a self-erected wall of ideological intellectual seclusion. Hayek's Nobel Prize cannot but have sparked among these Misesians the hope that perhaps the insights of Mises and Hayek can penetrate mainstream preconceptions after all. Moreover, the Nobel Prize awarded to Hayek came at a time when a certain flurry of fresh activity among American Austrians was being noticed. Several of Mises' disciples in the United States had made contributions which went beyond Mises' own published works. Murray Rothbard had in 1962 published his massive work, Man, Economy, and State, seeking to restate the central Misesian themes. I myself had in 1966 published a little book attempting to clarify Misesian capital theory. I had also published in 1973 a book elaborating on Misesian entrepreneurial theory and linking that theory to Hayek's work recognizing the role of dynamic competition instead of the textbook concentration on the perfectly competitive model. In 1974, in fact, just months before the Nobel Award to Hayek, and soon after Mises' passing in 1973, a conference, often referred to as South Royalton, took place. And in that conference, for an entire week, a group of some 50 or so young people, identified by their early expre earlier expressed potential interest in these ideas, heard lectures on Austrian themes delivered by Ludwig Lachmann, Murray Rothbard, and myself. The participation of Ludwig Lachmann, who, ha who, had, who held the chair of economics at the University of Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa, was particularly important. A senior respected scholar who had studied and written under Hayek during the 30s, Lachmann introduced young Misesians to a perspective on Austrian economic thought which opened their eyes to the precise location of the battlefield of ideas in which subjectivists such as the Austrians must wrestle with mainstream orthodoxy. Several of the participants in the South Royalton Conference, notably Gerald O'Driscoll and Mario Rizzo, were later to incorporate central elements of Lachmann's thinking into their own important contributions to the Austrian resurgence. So that, for American Austrians, this, the 1974 Nobel Award to Hayek did not occur, so to speak, in a vacuum. It certainly inspired them to deepen their understanding of Austrian ideas and to learn how to defend them against the standard mainstream rejection of these ideas. Not only did the award have the effect of bringing Hayek himself back into economics proper to some extent, I say this because Hayek's work during the 50s and 60s at the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, not in his economics department, had led to the perception that higher scholarly interests were no longer focused on economic theory. The award also had the effect, to a significant extent, of reawakening interest among younger American Austrians in Hayek's earlier work, as well as in the writings of Mises himself. An example of such reawakened interest is, is Gerald O'Driscoll's importance unfortunately neglected work, uh, Economics as a Coordination Problem, The Contributions of Friedrich A. Hayek, which he published in 1977. However, while we cannot deny all these sociological, quote, sociological implications of Hayek's Nobel Prize, we should not fall into the error of seeing the subsequent resurgence of interest into Austrian economics as adequately and fully explained by these implications. Our position in this lecture will be that a more important aspect of the resurgence consisted in purely doctrinal developments. Understanding these doctrinal developments will, in fact, open up for us a perspective on the history of Austrian economics which differs in decisive respects from the orthodox history which we have outlined earlier. Indeed, the revisionist history of the Austrian school that we shall propose goes far, as we shall see, to remove the mystery which we associated with the Austrian resurgence. 
so that the explanation for the Austrian resurgence turns out, as we shall see, not to depend primarily on the sociological implications of the Hayek Nobel Prize, but on, doct on, doctrinal, uh, on doctrinal developments. The revisionist view of the history of the Austrian School of Economics, which we would wish to propose here, in this revisionist view, the perception that the vitality of the Austrian tradition and economic theory came to an end in about 1940 is categorically rejected. Quite to the contrary, this, this revisionist view maintains that the decade between 1937 and 1948 was marked by an outburst of activity, both on the part of Mises and, separately, on the part of Hayek, radically refining and enhancing the Austrian understanding of the market economy. In this revisionist view, we must accept the intriguing paradox that precisely at the time when the orthodox historical account saw the Austrian school as having died, precisely in that, in that period, the leading economists in that school were making perhaps the most important theoretical contributions ever made during the entire span of the school's existence. In this revisionist view, the Austrian resurgence of the 70s and later decades consisted not in a mysterious resurrection of a long dead tradition, but in the discovery by a new group of fresh younger scholars of the remarkable contributions made by Mises and by Hayek, discoveries that had been utterly overlooked by the mainstream historians of thought in their haste to bury what they viewed as an already completely dead intellectual movement. It must, of course, be conceded that this revisionist history of Austrian economics during the mid-century must grapple with some glaring difficulties. How could the important contributions which we claim for Mises and Hayek have been simply overlooked? The, the, the balance of this lecture will, by identifying these revolutionary contributions which we claim for Mises and Hayek, and by relating them both to the earlier versions of, the Austrian, economic, of Austrian economics and to, com, con, to contemporaneous developments in mainstream economics, this will attempt to deal with these obvious challenges. A good portion of, 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 of my talk today will explore the, this claim that during the years between 1937 and 1948, Mises and Hayek made separate radical extensions of Austrian economics. We will here briefly identify these contributions in order to place our revisionist history of 20th century Austrian economics into its relevant context. At the same time, we will be able to address the obvious difficulties which we have referred to, confronting our revisionist view. The key to understanding all these issues is the well-known debate of the 1930s concerning the very possibility of rational central economic planning. As is well known, Mises had, early in the 20s, flatly declared rational central economic planning to be a contradiction in terms. Without genuine market prices for factors of production, Mises had pointed out, no central planning is possible. Without market prices, economic calculation in the complex society is impossible, period. Our thesis will be that the vigorous English language debates during the 1930s over this claim led Mises and Hayek separately to important clarifications. I emphasize clarifications, not modifications, but clarifications of their own earlier positions, positions based on their Austrian understanding of markets. Our thesis will, will, be, will indeed be that these clarifications meant, in effect, that the subjectivist Austrian understanding of markets was being importantly refined, quite apart from the implications for this theory of socialism. It's true that from the short-run perspective of the socialist calculation debate, these refinements merely defended the earlier Austrian critique of socialism, 
against the important challenges of such socialism defenders as H.D. Dickinson, Oscar Lange, Abba P. Lerner, but from the longer-run history of economic thought perspective, we can see that these refinements, we can see these refinements in their true light. From, from, the, from this longer-range history of thought perspective, we can, at least in retrospect, see that these refinements radically deepened the Austrian understanding of the market process. The mainstream of economic thought during this period certainly did not appreciate these defenses of the Austrian positions in the socialist calculation debate, so that it is not surprising that they completely failed to recognize the radically important deepening of Austrian subjectivism, which these refinements of the Austrian arguments in the calculation debate constituted. What Mises and Hayek realized, or at least sensed, when confronted with the Lange learner type refutations, so-called refutations of the Austrian critiques of socialism, what they realized was that these refutations re rested on a view of microeconomic theory which focused almost exclusively on equilibrium outcomes. That is, on outcomes in which rivalrous competitive entrepreneurial activity is entirely absent. Such equilibrium outcomes, these critics of Mises and Hayek maintained, these outcomes can in principle be simulated by central planners. What Mises and Hayek now sensed was that significant elements of basic under economic understanding must be restated in a manner emphasizing not the optimality of competitive equilibrium states of affairs, but the social benefits derived from the systematic steps taken during the rivalrous market process, starting from disequilibrium conditions. Mises's claims concerning the impossibility of rational central planning grew out of his understanding the dynamic market process, a position in today's talk the position which nourishes what we have called the revisionist history of the Austrian school is that the refinements which thus elaborated on the market process, on the theory of the market process, did indeed represent a radical historic advance in Austrian economics and a radical historic deepening of Austrian subjectivism. That the wider profession failed to see all this is and was responsible for the orthodox history of thought view, that by 1940, the Austrian school had retreated to old-fashioned, sterile regurgitations of long-rejected neoclassical orthodoxy. A more sophisticated understanding of these refinements, on the other hand, enables us to recognize the vitality and creativity of the surviving Austrians, Mises and Hayek, precisely during the decade in which the standard view saw them as merely pathetic relics of an earlier once important but now terminated tradition. In the more extended exposition during the rest of this talk, we will deal with a question of the extent to which Mises and Hayek were themselves fully aware of the radicality of their refinements. Let us restate the central theme of this talk. This theme is, that the significant elements in the resurgence of Austrian economics beginning with the 1970s consisted in the discovery by younger Austrians of these radical revisions enunciated during the 1937-1948 decade. As illustrations of this claim, we draw attention to two books contributed during the 1975-85 decade by two leading members of this group of younger Austrians. One book we've already mentioned, that was Gerald O'Driscoll's Economics as a Coordination Problem, the 1977 book, which, among other themes, brilliantly analyzed Hayek's contributions during the 37-48 decade. The second book was Don, Lavo Don Lavoie's superb 1985 work, Rivalry and Central Planning, the Socialist Calculation Debate Reconsidered. This was a book which explored the Misesian side of the socialist calculation debate, masterfully demonstrating how that position grow, grows 
out of the Austrian rejection of purely equilibrium price theory, and that 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 and that and that critique grows out of and reflects its emphasis on the dynamic rivalrous competitive forces which drive the market process. In this way, Lavoie was able to demolish the orthodox view that the Mises-Hayek arguments had been definitively refuted by their critics. This brief outline that we've just given of the central thesis of this talk calls out, urgently calls out to some elaboration. So let me try. Let me summarize what we'll try and set forth in the following pro propositions. Number one, the core understanding of how the market economy works, an understanding developed as a result of the marginalist revolution of the 1870s, was basically common to the various neoclassical schools which came to constitute much of the economics profession during the early decades of the 20th century, replacing the, the earlier, the former dominance of the German historical school and of its intellectual offspring in the UK and the USA. Second, in this core understanding, the central thrust was the theory of competitive market process. Although attention was in Walrasian and to some extent in Marshallian version of the common doctrine, certainly paid to equilibrium outcomes, but the market was not in the early decades of the 20th century seen as consisting primarily in its equilibrium state. Gradual, number three, point number three, gradual refinements of neoclassical theory during as the 20th century developed and the growing sophistication and influence of Walrasian theory together with a more careful Knightian articulation of what came to be seen as the conditions for perfect competition and in addition certain implications of Lionel Robbins' important definition of what the term economic means, these, all these developments came by the mid-30s to mean that for the cutting edge of mainstream economic theory at that time, the competitive market meant the fulfillment of the conditions for equilibrium. Fourth, this shift in focus, implicit in much of the work of the 30s, was at first simply not noticed by the Austrian economists. Thus, in his 1933 book, Grundprobleme der Nationalekonomie, which was later translated in 1960 as the Epistemological Problems of Economics, Mises had no qualms in approvingly citing a statement which had been made by Oscar Morgenstern that the Austrian school, the Anglo-American school, and the school of Lausanne differ only in their mode of expressing the same fundamental idea and that they are divided more by their terminology and by peculiarities of presentation than by the substance of their teaching. Now, Mises wrote that in, endorsed that in 1933. I can assure you that when I came to study under Mises in 1952, he would have denounced a statement like that. <laughs> but in 1933, he had not noticed that the, the difference, the, the glaring difference, the, 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 gaping, the gaping gulf separating uh, the Austrian position from the, the mainstream. Number five, so that when in the 1937-48 decade, Mises and Hayek found it necessary to clarify what their critique of socialism really meant, they believed themselves to be merely emphasizing the central meaning of commonly accepted neoclassical theory. They were simply not aware that their clarifications were, in fact, important original insights, significantly deepening our understanding of how markets work. There's an important book by Frank Mashovic, Perfect Competition and the Transformation of Economics, 1995 book, which explores this very theme. Point number six. On the other hand, as the new equilibrium versions of neoclassical microeconomic theory came to dominate the mainstream, the textbooks dismissed these clarifications by Mises and Hayek, not as important theoretical contributions, but as merely tired repetitions of early, less sophisticated incarnations of neoclassical theory. Seven, 
All this accounts for the circumstance that for decades following the end of World War II, the textbooks unanimously and wrongly dismissed the Mises higher critiques of socialism as having been decisively refuted by the writers who, starting from an exclusively equilibrium view of markets, had demonstrated how the equilibrium outcomes of markets might conceivably be duplicated by sophisticated central planners. Our position today is, will be, that the arguments of Mises and Hayek, working within their market process framework, were entirely immune to such neoclassical equilibrium critiques. And moreover, that their clarifications of the meaning of dynamic competitive forces, as distinguished from the concept of perfect competition, and their clarifications of the entrepreneurial process driven by the urge to win pure profit, rather than the conditions in which pure profit is ruled out by definition, that these clarifications constituted major original contributions to a more sophisticated Austrian economics. Mises and Hayek, one surmises, saw their clarifications as no more than careful restatements of earlier widely recognized truths. We, with the hindsight of subsequent history of thought reevaluation, can recognize the novelty and creativity of these contributions. It was only decades later, after years of Walrasian dominance, that the younger Austrians could recognize the yawning gulf separating these Mises higher contributions from the mainstream orthodoxy, and could at the same time recognize the validity and importance of these contributions. In 1932, Lionel Robbins presented his celebrated definition of that which is economic. Robbins taught us that the economic perspective on human and social affairs focuses on that aspect of human activity, whether in isolation, Crusoe, or through interpersonal interaction, markets, on that aspect of activity in which each individual recognizes that he is seeking to maximize an outcome, utility, profit, is seeking to maximize an outcome in a situation circumscribed by given resource limitations. Scarce means, juxtaposed with multiple competing ends, impose the need to economize. In a market society, the scarce means with respect to which an individual must economize turn out to be definable only in terms of the opportunities being made available by others. Thus, a person's budget constraint is a function of the market prices of the items which he might be interested in buying. Robin's emphasis on economics as a discipline based on seeing market participants as decision makers was a distinct advance over earlier British formulations. And this advance was, in fact, deeply influenced by his familiar, familiarity with the Austrian school in the late 1920s. Robbins had visited Vienna a number of times in the late 20s, and he had been deeply influenced uh, by the Austrian school. So this was an advance for which Austrians can take credit. However, as the textbooks of the 30s and 40s came to incorporate Robbins' important insight into the meaning of efficient allocation of resources, they came to extend that insight to areas of economics to which Robbins had not directly referred. One of these extensions was roundly deplored by James Buchanan in his 1963 presidential address to the Southern Economic Association. And that extension was the direct application of the notion of individual economizing activity that is, the seeking by the individual to maximize the satisfaction of his, her ends within the framework of given means, the ex that extension of that notion to the economy as a whole. Somehow, the textbooks illegitimately, illegitimately cited Robbins as the source of the idea that a nation is confronted with a global problem of allocating its resources efficiently. A second extension of Robbins' insight was the acceptance of an assumption believed to be implicit in Robbins' formulation, namely that each individual in society does in fact correctly know 
the constraints governing his individual economic problem. It was not always borne in mind that this assumption, if consistently applied, this assumption is a coherent one, strictly and exclusively in an equilibrium market context. Only if a market were already in the state of general equilibrium could it be imagined that every individual is correctly aware of all relevant market prices. For clearly in a market not in equilibrium, current market prices are by no means given. They are in continual flux as a result of market movements during the storm of adjustments which mark the disequilibrium market. Now, both Hayek and Mises, although neither of them directly challenged the Rabinzian definition, but both Mises and Hayek separately grappled with these same issues. Mises, in his monumental 1949 Human Action, and in his earlier 1940 German language version, National Economy, Mises presented economics as concerned not with economizing decision-making, but with human action. To act, Mises pointed out, is to aim purposefully at a goal. While efficient allocation of given scarce resources may certainly possibly be one form of human action, this latter term, the term human action, does not in any way depend upon assumed prior knowledge on the part of the actor concerning means and ends. Indeed, human action includes the very determination of the framework of ends and means with respect to which efficient resource allocation may hopefully be achieved. It should be noted that the notion of economic, of, uh, the notion of human action, unlike the notion of economizing, cannot even in principle be extended from the level of the individual to the level of an entire society. So that Mises' step beyond Robbins represents a further deepening of the subjectivist perspective which Robbins had himself absorbed from the Austrian economists whom he had met in Vienna during the late 20s. It was Mises' focus on human action which led him to recognize and to emphasize the role of pure entrepreneurship in individual action and in the dynamic market process. As he pointed out, although we ordinarily recognize entrepreneurship in the market context, the truth is that every human actor is at the moment of action an entrepreneur. He faces an open-ended future within which he must determine the range of opportunities available to him. The market process driven by entrepreneurial pursuit of pure profit opportunities consists in all of the interacting actions of all of the individual agents, all of them acting entrepreneurially, that is, acting with all the alertness that they can bring to bear in the respective situations in which they find themselves. Pure profit, the element which provides the dynamic force driving the market process, occurs when an alert, prescient entrepreneur senses that a complete package of inputs can be assembled today at a total cost which is below the revenue that will tomorrow be able to be received from eager consumers by producing and selling output uh, without using anything more than what's in that package. In other words, pure profit emerges as the implication of what is in effect the presence of two market prices for the same package. The package can be, can be assembled at a cost of 50, and the revenue from that package is, is 100. But this, by definition, is a disequilibrium situation. Two prices for the same package is a direct contradiction of the definition of equilibrium. What the market process consists of is an endless series of competitive entrepreneurial moves inspired by such arbitrage opportunities. All this is far, far removed from the Walrasian view of the market as a state of affairs in which all decisions being made are Rabinzian decisions, each of which correctly anticipates the parallel Rabinzian decisions being made by everyone else. This latter equilibrium situation offers no understanding of how it might ever be attained. Mises' articulation of the competitive entrepreneurial market process an, art an articulation which he apparently saw as merely the clarification of what all 20th century economists had once understood, 
was in truth a major, almost revolutionary advance in economic understanding. He presented this in his German language 1940 in National Economy, and in 1949 in the English version of the same work, appropriately titled Human Action. Hayek's no less revolutionary contribution during this same decade came in the form of a series of remarkable papers, starting in 1937, continuing through 1945, and which, was first published, which were first published together in his 1948 Individualism and Economic Order. In these papers, Hayek underlined the role of interpersonal knowledge in markets. The very definition of equilibrium shows that such an imagined state is the state of complete, perfect interpersonal knowledge. Everybody knows every price in the market. Everybody knows every point on every, think, every thinkable demand curve and every, on every thinkable supply curve. And everybody knows that everybody else knows it. The market process, on the other hand, consists, the market process, on the other hand, consists in the social process in which people come to know that which they have until now not known. The market process is a process of discovery and adjustment, creating the need for further discovery, etc., etc., etc. For both Mises and Hayek, the role of competition is drastically different from the role of perfect competition in mainstream microeconomics. The latter role, starting from its assumption of perfect knowledge, is that of ensuring that no disequilibrium elements are present in the theory of price. Paradoxically, this ensures that we have no theory of equilibration. For Mises and Hayek, on the other hand, competition means the dynamic forces which express the entrepreneurial discoveries which constitute the market process. The only requirement for a market to be competitive is that there be freedom of entry. That is, freedom for entrepreneurs to notice what they see as profit opportunities and to act upon their perceptions of available market opportunities. Were the defenders of socialist planning of the 1930s to have, to have understood all this, they would have realized how irrelevant their solutions to Mises' challenge really were. But as noted, virtually the entire literature on the socialist calculation debate failed to grasp these revolutionary insights contributed by Mises and Hayek. It was this, we have argued, that explains both, first, why that literature for decades after World War II glibly repeated the myth that writers such as Langer and Lerner had successfully refuted Mises and Hayek on the socialist calculation issue, and second, why, failing to recognize the freshness and epic value of these new contributions by Mises and Hayek in the decade between 1937 and 1948, the mainstream literature read those years as marking the death of the Austrian school, rather than, as we have argued, as being one of the most fruitful decades in the history of the Austrian school. We can now place the doctrinal impact of Hayek's Nobel Prize into its more complete context. This more complete context concerns the places of both Mises and Hayek in the century and a half history of the Austrian school. Many historians of thought have emphasized the undisputed differences between Hayek's economics and that of Mises. Our position here will be that in spite of real differences between Hayek and Mises, the doctrinal impact of Hayek's Nobel Prize underlines the commonalities shared by these two great Austrians. It may be helpful to the development of our position to cite here an oral remark once made by Hayek, in his, it's published in his, in the, in the autobiographical uh, dialogues that are published in Hayek on Hayek. This, this remark was to the effect that he had learned more from Mises than he had learned from anyone else. It's a remarkable statement. It's an oral statement, maybe off the cuff, but it was a statement that he learned more from Mises than he learned from anyone else. Now I'm going to suggest what lies behind that statement. To grasp the what I think is the meaning of this remarkable statement, 
After all, Hayek had never been a formal student of Mises. I believe that to grasp the meaning of this formal statement, the remarkable statement, it is useful to refer to another passage, an oft-quoted passage, which Hayek first wrote in 1942, and it was republished of, of, of part of his, of his 1955 book on, uh, on, the, the, on, on scientism in, in economics. In that passage, in his 1955 book, but originally 1942, Hayek made the important claim that every important advance in economic theory during the previous century had been a further step in the consistent application of subjectivism. That's a remarkable statement. Every step, every important step, every important advance in economic theory during the preceding century was a further step in the consistent application of subjectivism. I suggest that this is what he learned from Mises. This is what he meant that he learned more from Mises than he learned from anyone else. And, in, and there's a footnote to that, to that uh, passage in, in the 1955 book. In that footnote, Hayek adds, this development of the, that is the development of consistent application of subjectivism has probably been carried out most consistently by Ludwig von Mises. And that what may strike readers of Mises as being most strange and unacceptable is the result of the fact that in the consistent development of the subjectivist approach, he, meaning Mises, has for a long time moved ahead of his contemporaries. And I think on the basis of this, of this we can make a conjecture. What, he, what Hayek meant when he said he learned more from Mises than anybody, from anybody else. I think what he learned from Mises was his awareness of the open-endedness of the world. That is the fundamental subjectivist perspective. We live in an open-ended world, not in a closed-ended world. We live in an open-ended world. Standard economics treats the world as a closed universe, one in which relevant alternatives present themselves to decision-makers in definitely perceived form. The decision-maker sees himself as confronted by a limited number of clearly marked-out possible courses of action each leading to a definite, definitely perceived outcome. In such a world, there is never surprise. The person can never be surprised. Everything, if the person doesn't know something, he knows that he doesn't know it. If a person doesn't know, doesn't know something, he knows what it costs to find out what he doesn't know. He's never surprised by a piece of information that he didn't know before, because he knew they didn't know it. There's nothing to be surprised about. That's a, that's a closed-end world. But what, what, the, what Mises' subjectivism taught Hayek was that we live in an open-ended world. That, is, that I believe, is, 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 it requires us to reevaluate and restate the, the history, the long-run sweep of the development of the Austrian school. The history of economics from its classical roots in the 18th century to its modern state at mid-20th century was a story of transformation from a physicalist framework to a subjectivist framework. The classical economists saw causation in economics as being set in motion by the physical natural constraints of niggardly nature. But modern economics understands that the pattern of economic outcomes is more fundamentally traceable to the actions of human beings in their roles of resource owners, potential consumers, and entrepreneurs. Th this understanding of the market process requires us to recognize that these decision makers, these resource owners, potential consumers, and entrepreneurs are aware that they are acting in an open-ended context. This understanding of the market process had been imbibed by Hayek through his exposure to Mises' ideas, both oral and written. So that when Hayek, in his developments of those, those remarkable essays that I've referred to in the, between 1937 and 1945, in those essays, Hayek was developing that perspective, that subjectivist perspective, which he had fundamentally learned from Mises. And in this way, 
it's it's the 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 contributions of Hayek and of Mises in that decade constitute as what I've called a radical deepening of subjectivist Austrian understanding. Certainly, these advances were separate advances. Hayek's emphasis on knowledge discovery is distinct from Mises' emphasis on entrepreneurial action. But taken together, these separate advances constituted a joint, highly important step forward in subjectivist understanding. This is what we have meant by seeing these advances as a joint, radically significant contribution to the refinement and increased sophistication of the central message of the Austrian school. So the argument in this paper is that the advance of subjectivist thinking in contemporary Austrian economics can be attributed at least in part to the Nobel Prize, Prize that was awarded to Friedrich Hayek in 1974. It was this award, we have suggested, that sparks the post-1974 rediscovery by younger Austrians of the radical contributions to the deepening of subjectivist economic understanding, which had been made more than a quarter of a century earlier by Mises and Hayek. The vitality of the subsequent resurgence in Austrian economics may, we have proposed, be seen as an important step further in recognizing the scope and potential of subjectivism in economic analysis. As we look back on the four decades which have passed since Hayek's Nobel Prize, we can in this way appreciate the historical significance of this award for the ensuing, no longer mysterious, rebirth of the Austrian school. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.